Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing variations in the intensity of research and development in different parts of the UK and what can be done about it. With me to discuss that is Professor Richard Jones, Professor of Materials Physics and Innovation Policy at the University of Manchester. Professor Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So what are the imbalances between R&D intensity across different regions of the UK? So it turns out if we look at uh, how much R&D is done and we kind of uh, do that, measure it, say, in relation to the population, we find that R&D is very strongly concentrated in the southeast of the country, in essentially uh, London, uh, East Anglia, and the southeast and in fact if we look on a finer geographical scale a kind of startling headline is that 46 percent of public and charitable r&d is concentrated in two sub-regions that contain cambridge and oxford and uh, and london as a whole so that's 46 percent of the r&d in a place that's got 21 percent of the population so i think uh, what we see is that, uh, that we've got places that are very research intensive in the in, in the uk and i should say those are very important places for the uk they're very prosperous places they're great drivers of the uh, uh, of the uk's economy so we shouldn't feel that it's a bad thing that we've got places like oxford and cambridge and london with this fantastic concentration of research it's just that if we look out uh, outside London and the southeast there are parts of the country where there's very little research activity at all and uh, perhaps interestingly there are places where the balance between public and private research uh, looks um, it looks slightly strange we've got places that actually have very high private sector R&D where the public sector doesn't put that much in so it's an interesting picture it's a very lumpy map if you like if we look at where R&D takes place in the UK so whilst we can't be completely generic about these things, regions of lower R&D intensity are also often regions of lower economic performance. But what is the link between those two? Do we know that if we increased R&D intensity in a particular region, that would lead to increased economic performance? That, I think it's a really interesting question. And actually, the answer is not obvious. I mean, the correlation is clear. If you plot out, uh, you know, a measure of productivity, GVA per person or something, and you plot that out against R&D intensity, actually, there's a pretty good uh, correlation. So, so the parts of the country that are poor are places that have a low R&D intensity. I guess there are two ways that you could look at this. I mean, I th and actually, I think both views have some merit. On the one hand, you could say, well, having a high R&D intensity is, if you like, a signal of a well-performing economy. It means you've got international companies that are, that, that are operating close to the technological frontier. And so R&D is kind of part of the package of a high-performing economy. So that's, that's kind of one view. The other view, which I, which I think is also worth examining, though the evidence for this is surprisingly patchy, is that you know, there's a direct relationship between R&D intensity and productivity. Now, we actually know there is a direct relationship between R&D intensity and productivity at the level of a country. So we've got quite good econometric studies which show that there's a, a, a pretty strong correlation. So, so uh, 
you know, we, we, we get uh, estimates of the, uh, the kind of social return of R&D spending, uh, which are pretty high. So at the country level, we think there's good, uh, there's good evidence that there's a correlation, but, uh, you know, a direct correlation, a causal correlation between R&D intensity and productivity. But th there's an interesting argument about what's the spatial scale of this. And I think in the past, I think the assumption has been made too glibly, if you like, that R&D carried out in Cambridge or Oxford has benefits throughout the country. And I think that's an assumption that we need to look at a little bit more carefully. And I think uh, there is evidence that the spillovers for R&D are actually more localised than that. So, you know, if we did put more R&D money in these underperforming places, then we would see a, a benefit in those places. Just before we dive into some of the individual regions, how does the UK's overall R&D intensity compare with that of other leading industrial nations? Well, frankly, it, it, it's low. I mean, the, the R&D intensity is about 1.7% of R&D. That's quite a lot. That, that's substantially below the OECD average, which is, uh, which is about 2.4%. So uh, it, we, we're not a, a technologically leading country if we measure it purely by R&D investment. Probably the, the most R&D intensive large country at the moment is Korea which is very, very much more R&D intensive. China has surpassed the UK in the intensity, in the R&D intensity of its economy. It surpassed it some years ago, actually. And we're less R&D intensive than, you know, I think the countries we'd think of as being our comparators would be France and Germany. We're substantially less R&D intensive than either of those. And obviously the government has promised a significant increase, at least in public R&D spending over the coming years, with an aim of reaching that OECD average of 2.4% of GDP for R&D by 2027. How do we use some of that extra funding to address some of the regional R&D imbalances that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I, I think this is a great opportunity. I, I think that's a very welcome uh, commitment, actually, by the government. Actually, I, I think it's actually a fairly broad commitment, quite right across the political spectrum, to make the UK's economy more R&D intensive. One ought to say, when one says 2.4% R&D intensity, one is talking about both public R&D and private R&D. So it's it's kind of quite an interesting target for a government to, to commit to because it's not entirely in the control of the government. There's a general assumption that, you know, there's a rough rule of thumb. There's about a two to one relationship between public R&D spending and private R&D spending. So generally, if you put a pound in, in, in public R&D, uh, you get two pounds back from, from, from private R&D. And so countries that have increased their R&D intensity, there are a number of them. South Korea, I mentioned, has increased hugely, but Belgium, Switzerland, Denmark, Germany have all uh, over recent years increased their R&D intensity. And they do see that kind of general pattern that the private sector responds to public sector increases. But of course, it does mean that we, we do have an opportunity to develop the R&D intensity of parts of the country that, that haven't, that have a lower level of R&D without damaging the, uh, the, the high performing regions that we currently have. So I think it's actually a very, it's a kind of unique moment, because I think if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, you would be quite legitimately saying, well, look, is it really a good idea to kind of try and... Um, 
put at risk the fantastic knowledge-based economy of Cambridge, for example, in order to shovel more money to the north or to, to Northern Ireland. And, you know, that would have been a valid thing to say then. But if we're really talking about a serious increase in public R&D spending, now we have that opportunity to do a bit of rebalancing without putting at risk the achievements of the, the very highly achieving places that we've got. Because, I mean, the, the, the government's committed to actually 22 billion public R&D spending by 2024-2025, uh, which is actually about a 10 billion increase. And uh, in our Nesta report, Tom Forth and I did this very rough back of the envelope calculation that said, you know, the right amount of money was about four billion. If you put about four billion into the Midlands, the North, Northern Ireland, Wales, Southwest, you would be kind of getting those regions on a rough par with London, the South East and East Anglia. And, you know, if we think of those parts of the country as being, you know, broadly speaking, the bits of the country that look like a Northern European prosperous economy, that, that that's the scale. So I think there's been a, a thing about scale. I would add, actually, you know, there's another point that people have made that, you know, we have seen attempts to rebalance R&D funding regionally in the past. In the, um, the Labour governments of the, uh, of the 2000s, there was a conscious effort. But again, a point that Tom and I really wanted to stress was there's an important thing about scale. Those efforts were not at a scale that were commensurate with the problem so they may well have had some beneficial effects but if people turn around and say well you know they haven't really turned around the economy of the north or the midlands our reply would be well no and you wouldn't have expected them to because the interventions were at too small a scale so thinking about some of the different regions of the uk obviously it's not just a question of having money but that's a question of deciding how to spending it and spending that well Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have devolved administrations. The situation is a little bit different in some of the different English regions, with some of them having a level of devolution and some of them having less. Do we have the right structures and skills in the right parts of the UK to help make good funding decisions in, in different regions? The frank answer is no, I don't think we do at the moment. I, I think there are kind of two questions here. The first question is, on what basis would we make those decisions in the first place? And the second question is, do we have institutions that allow us to, 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 to make the decisions and make them stick? On the first point, why would we decide to, to, to place money in one place rather than the other? What kind of criteria would we, would we use? A point that Tom and I were very keen to make was that we actually should look at, there's some very interesting signals in the private sector spending. And you know, one of the unusual features, and I think this is unusual internationally, as some of the international comparisons we show uh, make, make this clear, there's a real disparity in the UK between where the private sector puts its R&D money and where the public sector puts its R&D money. So there's a bunch of places which actually have quite high private sector R&D investment where it's not really matched by the public sector. And so our argument is actually those are the easy places. Those are the places where um, you can see they're clearly 
clusters of expertise in existence. There's the absorptive capacity. The economies have the capacity to make use of the uh, innovation and skills that come from R&D spending. So those are places where actually, you know, you can make a good case for increased spending. So places like the Northwest, uh, East Midlands in particular, you've got aerospace in Derby, you've got automotive in Coventry. You know, you can see in, in the Northwest, there's a big kind of chemicals pharma cluster. You've got signals from the private sector about where investments probably would be quite uh, would be absorbed and uh, and converted into value quite well so that's the, the first question i think that, that does leave us with problems where there are places with very weak innovation economies both public and private and there i think there's going to be more thought needed then when you come back to the institutions i think this is a problem because you know naturally places that have got a strong knowledge economy have got lots of well-informed people, their political systems, their political leadership understands the importance of R&D. They're probably in a position to, to, to make good decisions. You know, I think the Scottish government is, a, you know, an effective organisation. You know, they have a funding council that's quite effective. They've got bits of the government that do industrial strategy. You know, they could, I think, be relied on to, to, to make sensible decisions. I think in England the, the situation is different. So, so I mean, to some extent, you know, I think all the devolved nations have some strengths. I'm sure there are ways in which they could improve, but the, you know, there's really good starting points there. I think the problem comes in the very patchy devolution settlement that we've got in in England, where you have some cities that have got a, a strong devolved authority that is able to make good decisions. I think you've got other places where that where that would be much much more difficult to see. So I think part of this problem is about trying to develop those institutions. I think it's important that we do develop those institutions because I think local knowledge is really important. I think it would be quite wrong to think that you, you know you could have a bunch of people in Victoria Street deciding, you know, what's the right thing to do in East Lincolnshire and what's the right thing to do in, in, in the Isle of Scilly or whatever. I think those decisions need to be made close to the people who are affected by people who understand their local economies. But on the other hand, they probably need support in understanding the potential of innovation and what innovation could do for those economies as well. So that, I think, is going to be the task for developing this agenda. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the actual scale of geography. So I'm old enough to remember we used to have regional development agencies across England that were of a certain size. Uh, we had, I think, nine, but don't quote me in case I'm wrong. We then went to local enterprise partnerships, of which we have nearly 40. And they, of course, are a lot smaller and we have some areas where those local enterprise partnerships coincide directly with sort of devolved greater authorities and somewhere where they don't. Are we in a position where we've gone too small with some of our areas or is, is that kind of expanded city level about right for taking some of these decisions? The, the expanded city is a good unit. And uh, again, just to come back to, you know, the strangeness of economic geography in, in, in the UK, it is an odd feature of UK's economic geography that the big second tier cities underperform compared to what you'd expect by comparison with, you know, European cities on the same scale. So Glasgow, Manchester, Birmingham, 
as you know greater manchester the west midlands as kind of those big conurbations they ought to be driving the economy in the uk much more than they actually do and i think that's a really big problem i know you know there's a kind of interesting political discussion about you know cities versus towns is the problem that uh, you know all the money's gone to build high rises in the middle of manchester instead of going to bury and rochdale i think that's a slightly unfortunate bit of discourse that we've got into uh, you know the reductio ad absurdum is to say you know do, we don't really think that Guildford is suffering because London is prospering I think if we had prosperous cities the towns in their hinterlands would prosper too so one should think about you know the right unit is the unit of a, a, a big city and it's in its hinterland as would be you know West Midlands or, or, or Greater Manchester you know it leaves us with problems about you know, how do we think about both, you know, smaller cities and then, you know, outlying coastal and rural peripheries? Some places I think probably R&D is not actually the solution and, uh, you know, you shouldn't expect R&D to be a tool for economic development everywhere. It probably isn't. I think it certainly is in big cities, though. We do need there to think about how the benefits, you know, spread through the whole economic region. Then to come back, okay, so that's a discussion about economic geography. What about a discussion about political geography? Political geography is more complicated. I think some of the leps are too small. I think standing back to say, you know, what, what are the requirements for a political unit or how can a political unit like that be effective? I think it does need to have a degree of political legitimacy. So I think, you know, mayoral combined authorities do provide that level of political legitimacy that I think leps in some of the more artificial looking bunches of places lack a little bit. I think there's an issue about capacity, analytical capacity, about the, uh, you know, whether places have got the people who can, can help support good decisions. And then what, what are the tools that people have got to actually deploy? What's the money they can actually spend? So those are the questions I think we need to ask about asking you know is the political geography right to, to to do this rebalancing and certainly at the moment a lot of decisions on publicly funded research are taken from uk research and investment ukri what changes might be needed in the way that ukri takes decisions on funding if it's going to be feeding into this process or are indeed ukri the right body to be allocating some of this money that we're thinking about on a place-based system? Well, I think UKRI is an enormously important body. I think UKRI, you know, historically, the, 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 the components of UKRI, research councils, Innovate UK, who have not actually, uh, you know, in fact, really rather explicitly not taken place into account. So I think there needs to be a bit of a, a change in terms of what, you know, UKRI needs to own the problem a little bit more. So UKRI needs to feel that uh, ha having strong knowledge economies right across the, the, the country is something that it's their job to deliver. So I think that that, that has some implications in terms of governance, some implications just in terms of data and being aware of the, the problems. I think I'm hearing very positive sounds from, from UKRI and from some of the research councils along these lines. So I think they're, they're taking that on board. I think they also have a role in supporting regions in developing their own capacity. I mean, there is at the moment, you know, one 
place-based funding instrument, the Strength in Places Fund. I think that should be increased. There should be more of that. I think I think the research councils need to make sure that they are factoring place into their decisions. But I think they've got a very strong role also in working with places and regions to work out, you know, what are the right, uh, you know, what's the right research and innovation strategy for a particular place, given its industrial structure, given, you know, what, what's there already, given the problems it faces. And, uh, you, you know, I'd like to see that really taken as part of the UKRI mission. And how do some of these incentives feed down to individual universities? I mean, universities at the moment are obviously paid and incentivized to deliver quality research and quality research is divided in a particular way that isn't really related to geography. How does that need to change? Well, I think, again, you know, we've seen some uh, some evolution here. So I think uh, we've seen, you know, incentives have changed in the sense that the research excellence framework, first of all, included impact. So it did first, you know, we do now see much more uh, attention paid to, to impact. We have a knowledge exchange framework, which has been coming into its first full year. And that uh, rightly has an explicit uh, uh, heading for, for local and regional engagement in, in you know in the criteria that are judged so you know it's it's a question of bringing things to the attention of university managements I think you know that's the kind of top-down uh, approach that's what you know what, what uh, research England has done to English universities uh, in some ways the, the universities and the devolved administrations are probably more conscious of where they are anyway because they've got got their own funding councils so we've seen that top-down move happening but I think we're also seeing a, a lot of bottom-up movement from universities you know movements around you know ideas in the civic university uh, I, I think there's a lot of discussion, a very interesting discussion going on amongst, you know, in the, the university community, if I can put it that way, about what universities should be doing to support their regions. And I think, you, you know, to an extent that we didn't see 10 years ago, universities are understanding their function as anchor institutions in their economy as really important players in their economy. I think universities are much more conscious of that now and much more conscious of, of that role. Of course, in some cases, this is just going back to, to history. I mean, many universities were founded for exactly those purposes. You know, the great explosion of red brick universities in the late 19th century was absolutely civic leaders saying, our, our city's got to have a university. So in a sense, it's going back to that as much. Yes, and, and universities may have been distracted to an extent by incentives taking them in a different direction over some of the recent decades. Just to finish off, we obviously can't solve this problem of regional disparities in R&D very, very quickly. So what are the key steps which the government should be taking over the next 18 months or two years to sort of get us moving in the right direction? Well, I think work needs to happen at UKRI uh, and, so, you know, and the other bits of the central government. So the, the, the arms of the central government need to own this problem a little bit more. I mentioned UKRI National Institute of Health Research is another very large funder that's actually enormously geographically concentrated. And that seems not quite right. So I think 
there needs to be work in the centre to, to, to develop a consciousness of this. I think, you know, new funding instruments will be needed. I think there needs to be a demand from cities and regions and nations. I think, um, you, you know, part of this is actually cities understanding that innovation is important and they ought to be doing more of it. And, you know, I think a, a, it would be healthy if we got city leaders and uh, uh, leaders of devolved nations hammering on the door of UKRI more saying, how's the situation been allowed to arise? So I think we need to get that demand. Then we need to build that capacity in, in, in cities and regions and nations to, to devise good R&I strategies. Uh, and then I think, you know, we do need funding. We need funding that is... Uh, you know, some amount of funding, not all of it. There's still a very large amount of funding that's been allocated completely placed place blind. But there will need to be more funding that's directed specifically to regions in support of rationally constructed kind of local innovation strategies. We probably do need some more institutions too, because you know, it's no there's no use throwing money at places if you haven't built the institutions and structures that can absorb that money and uh, you know convert it into the public benefit that I think we'd want to see from public R&D spending. That's wonderful. We need to leave it there. Let's see how the government manage uh, along that list of things. Uh, Professor Richard Jones, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, my guest was Professor Richard Jones, Professor of Materials Physics and Innovation Policy at the University of Manchester. Professor Jones is a speaker at a webinar being organised by the Foundation on the 7th of October on the R&D roadmap levelling up across the UK, along with Amanda Soloway, MP, Science and Research Minister in the UK Government, and Ken Skates, MS, Minister for Economy in the Welsh Government. Places are still available. Details of that event, plus all our other events, all our podcasts and blogs, are on the Foundation website at www.foundation.org.uk.